a listener production. This is From Zero, conversations with business founders. I'm Adam Schwab, co-founder of LuxuryEscapes.com, financial journalist, author, and angel investor. With my best mate from school, we co-founded Luxury Escapes, and the business has grown to turn over almost a billion dollars annually. People ask me all the time, how do we start the business? And now I want to turn the tables. In this episode, I speak to Dom Holland, founder of the one-click online shopping solution, Fast.co. With Australian VCs, always found that I was kind of pulling the vision back a little bit <laughs> because anything too wild and it just seems crazy, right? In the States, it's the opposite. You got to go bigger. You got to give them the big, the big, big view and big story, right? And, and let them know just how big it could possibly be. This is a slightly unusual episode of From Zero. We recorded this original episode a few months ago and had no idea the difficulties that Dom's business, Fast, was experiencing. After recording this episode, very sadly, Dom announced that Fast would cease operating. Regardless of what happened with Fast in the end, we thought Dom's story was one still very much worth sharing. And it can teach us a valuable lesson in just how quickly things can turn in a fast-growing business. With that in mind, we hope you enjoyed the episode. Dom Holland's childhood was one of contradictions. Dom was obsessed with computer programming, but he was also a competitive state boxer. Dom spent his afternoons training in the boxing ring before going home and spending his nights building things on the computer. But outside of these hobbies, Dom's childhood was challenging. One silver lining of young people living through difficult childhoods is that it can instill a sense of grit that makes them well-suited to life as an entrepreneur. My parents went through a fairly bitter divorce when I was when I was quite young, and uh, we had like a, a lot of years where it was tough, and um, my family was sort of ripped apart in a in a fairly sort of awful way, and um, and so I, I I was angry for you know a period of time and um, and confused and and you know generally melancholy I think would be a, a good way of describing it, and um, I used to. I used to pick fights with um, big kids all the time and I used to get beaten all the time. <laughs> and um, it was just, you know, it was just kind of how I responded to um, to life around me. And, and there came a time when one day, you know, after too many days of going home and saying that I fell over at soccer practice because my face was busted up, um, you know, my parents at the time took me on a Sunday to, to, the, to the local pub and uh, they sat me down and and there was a boxing match on with Costa Zoo and Seb Judah. And so obviously this was about, about 20 years ago. And, uh, and it's a fairly famous fight. But when Costa Zoo sort of knocked out Seb Judah, the American boxer, and, um, and Seb Judah did the uh, chicken dance. And, and I thought it was really interesting. I thought it was cool being at the pub on a Sunday when I was 14. And, um, and uh, I thought it was an interesting fight. And then the next day they picked me up from school. They took me to the local PCYC, dropped me off out the front and said, you're going to go upstairs and, and learn how to box because we're sick of seeing you come home um, busted up. And um, 
and so I, you know, I did, and and it was just an incredible outlet for me. It, um, you know, it, it had the opposite effect that people would think about boxing. You know, I stopped fighting instantly. You know, part of part of part of boxing was, you know, they were strict. My trainer was strict in that if I was fighting outside of outside of boxing, then I couldn't I couldn't go back. Right? If you caught boxing in the street or boxing, you know, fighting at school or whatever, then they're not going to train you. And so instantly, you know, it sort of gave me an outlet, gave me a way to sort of release frustration, you know, gave me something to work towards. You know, I got, you know, really physically fit and just taught me discipline and control and, yeah, it just turned everything around for me. And uh, and so it was just this incredible um, sort of turning point for me. And, um, yeah, I, you know, I love it. It still, you know, has got a strong place in my heart ever since. They broke up right before I, I turned nine, and uh, I think it was about a week before my birthday. And um, we, you know, it was a really tumultuous period. You know, we spent about a year, us kids, kind of in and out of courtrooms, um, you know, as, as it was kind of fighting for custody. My mom moved, you know, with a new partner. Um, we, we lived in Bondi. I grew up in Bondi. And, you know, frankly, until I was, until then, I had the most oblivious childhood. We didn't have a lot of money. We, you know, we rented a three bedroom house, I think, and I was one of four kids. And, um, and but it was like a, a, an incredible sort of neighborhood, you know, neighborhood Australian upbringing that was just, you know, great. I would ride my bike with the neighborhood kids, you know, every day. And it was just a, a sort of really nice life. And, um, and then it just all changed one day, and you know, my mum moved eight hundred, you know, eight hundred kilometers away, in the middle of the country, to a place I'd never been. <laughs> I just, our life just turned upside down overnight, and um, and then we were in out of courtrooms, and so we were sort of back and forwards for six months or so, and then ended up my 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 dad ended up, um, you know, he went bankrupt fighting for custody for a long time, and then, you know, I, it's it's funny, my, my dad was the struggling actor and director his whole life and um you know likely you've seen him on some australian soap show um having having some role or, or a number of them over the years without sort of realizing and uh, he's been on been on everything but you know never quite <laughs> you know got that big break and um you know i think the funniest one was you know he had the script to the movie saw in our house for years before that movie was ever made. And, uh, he owned the rights to the script and just could never raise the money to make the film. And he lost, you know, you buy the options on films for a while and he lost the option and cause he couldn't, you know, pay to renew it. And then a year later, you know, a couple of, a couple of uni kids raised a million bucks and, and made that film. And, um, you know, I think he's come close, but he just, he, you know, never had that sort of, you know, dream fulfilling event, um, that kind of turned it around for him. And it's funny because, you know, I always looked at my dad and, and, you know, I love, I love my dad and, and I don't think that there's a human being in the world that doesn't love him. He's a very lovable man, but, um, but he, uh, you know, I, I always remember thinking, you know what, I just don't want that up and down life. You know, I don't want it to go through that up and down. I want some more consistency. And of course I, I went into the completely wrong field, um, a bit, you know, for that. But I do think that, um, you know, despite being an actor and director, I think there's a lot of similarities with sort of, um, entrepreneurs and actors and, you know, and directors in general, it's a, a similar sort of ride. And, um, and I definitely think that I learned, you know, a, a lot of that or, or got a lot of my character from him. There's, a, there's an interesting link, and, and it obviously wasn't exactly the same for you, but, but um, children who have more difficult childhoods, and often it's a, it's a parent passing away, but it can be 
obviously what you experienced and tend to become very good entrepreneurs. Uh, there's, a, there's a really unusual um, correlation there. And it could be could be the grit, it could be the resilience. Do you think you've had a really, and we'll talk about your career in a second, you've had a really interesting career and, and grit's been a real factor. Do you think your sort of that, that difficult period from, so what, nine to, to 18 or even maybe a bit earlier, but was formational in terms of, of how, how you would later become successful? Yeah, look, um, no question. I think it's a short answer. Um, you know, you got when you hit zero, right, when you hit rock bottom, you know, and, and then realise that you can move forwards and then realise that you can keep going and uh, that's, you know, is it, it gives you perspective throughout every other moment in life, right? And so, you know, but t- times get really tough. You know, I've had a lot of t- tough times in business, uh, tough times in personal life, you know, with other things. And, um, and you know, I, I just come from a, a different perspective of knowing what I can handle. And, and, you know, I think we're capable as humans of handling like incredible, <laughs> incredible things, incredible amounts of stress and incredible amounts of, um, uh, you know, sort of negativity in our lives. And I think a lot, a lot of people just aren't, I'm yet sure of how much they can handle. And maybe ne- will never be, right? And I think I go into things with more confidence, not from, a, a, you know, a sort of um, statute of arrogance or anything, but just because I know that I can handle, you know, really tough things and, and tough times. And and I think that does help, right? And, you know, I think the sort of other thing that that means is that um, – I'm just hardwired to move forwards, right? And not and and I think that's the biggest thing is that I I only know that sort of one <laughs> one direction as forwards, and uh, and that's because you know I, there's no no point dwelling on the past, no point feeling sorry for myself, you know. And that's that's why I learnt when I was, you know, before I started boxing is I just I was feeling sorry for myself, you know, I was just caught up in my own emotion, and I learnt to just get past it and uh and and that i think is is a really important lesson outside of boxing dom's other passion in high school was working with computers and writing software dom would spend hours building games and writing basic visual scripts he loved it and was good at it eventually studying fourth year uni courses while he was still in high school and by the end of school he managed to win a scholarship to bond university on the gold coast but Dom quickly realised that even though he was pursuing his passion, the university experience wasn't quite what he expected. I've always loved computers, everything to do with computers. I fell in love. I just fell in love with them. I, I still find it fascinating and amazing that, you know, at a certain point, little bits of metal and, and minerals suddenly form some type of intelligence, right, and, and can become more than just, the sum, you know, the sum of the parts. And and I think it's, it's an incredible thing. And, and I, I, I love everything about them, right? I love the hardware. I love software. I love, you know, web and internet. And it's just really such an incredible space. And um, I got a, a scholarship to go to Bond Uni um, and, uh, and study computer science. But you know, I, again, we didn't have a lot of money. And even with the scholarship, I just couldn't afford to go there. You know, I would have to work full time just to pay, you know, to pay for board there. And it was too hard. And anyway, so I ended up, uh, I got into UNSW for computer science and I decided to go to UNSW instead. And um, I was there for two weeks and I was so excited. And every day I would go and sit at the front of the, you know, the front of the room, front of the lecture hall, so eager to kind of learn. And I was devastated because I, it was just, you know, I, it's just stuff that I had been doing for years and it was just so, it was just 
so um, underwhelming. And I remember there was this one day about two weeks in when, you know, in front of a lecture hall of about 700, you know, students, the lecturer said, I can't even remember what it was now, he said something wasn't possible, right? It was just uh, some impossible, impossible task. And I, and I put my hand up, you know, not, not trying to be sort of um, – uh, you know, make, make a name for myself, but I said, it's just wrong. I'm like, I've done this, I've done that before. And, and, and he said, he, you know, he called me out. He was like, no, you're, you're, you're wrong. And I stayed up that night. I spent about, you know, 12 hours programming, built the thing, went in the next day, handed it in and, and quit uni at, uh, that day. And I was like, I just, I, I, I couldn't possibly sit through four years of this. And I always wanted to do something in the space. I didn't ever want to be a programmer for hire. Um, nothing wrong with that. I just, you know, I was just searching for something that sort of grabbed me more. I guess I loved the idea of building things. I started building e-commerce stores while I was in high school. Um, you know, that's part of the reason I, I got the sort of was given the scholarship is I was, you know, building e-commerce stores and selling things. And I was kind of, that's why I loved the Dell story about Dell and these, you know, d- dorm rooms started building computers and then selling them. And I was doing a similar thing in high school, obviously, before I'd even heard of Dell. And yeah, you know, I I wanted to do more, and so I actually got into sales. I um I was always you know pretty good with talking in general, and uh, you know I, I I did every type of sales as soon as I got out of school. So I actually started door to door sales, I did retail sales. So I did door to door sales selling you know save the children charities, um you know charity subscriptions. I went and did um uh, retail sales at Harvey Norman. I went and started doing um, phone sales and 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 debt collection for telecommunications companies like Commander, and um, and then I started doing small business sales and field sales, and I became an account executive. And then I went and worked at Dell in enterprise sales, and um, I just sort of worked through you know through the way. And I, I at, especially at, at places like Dell, I would just go and spend time with every department and talk to the leaders and just like understand what they did and really tried to get involved and understand how big big deals worked and what was the finance function behind that and the comms function. And I, I was just fascinated with kind of all, all of it. And and then in the end, I, you know, I was doing such big deals for Dell and managing, you know, all of enterprise sales for New Zealand. And uh, and I just got to a point where I was like, I, I, I need to be selling my own product. You know, I, I need to be working, you know, doing this for myself. And so, yeah, I, I left and I got a plane to Silicon Valley. This was in 2009. And I just spent time on the ground. Like, you know, I, I was working on a sort of media network concept, which didn't go anywhere. Um, but it was just really interesting and fascinating to kind of see this, see this space. And, and to be honest, back then, I didn't like Silicon Valley at all. I um, it was so conservative i was like a loud tattooed australian and i think people thought i was nuts and you know and i think they still do and um and uh yeah and so i went back home and um you know soon after i met my wife i was living in sydney and i met my wife she was in in brisbane and i fell in love and and moved to brisbane to be with my wife and i've sort of lived there for the last 10 years we ended up growing a a small family but um you know and then i i just started working I guess like as a um, a tech consultant or I had a, you know, small digital agency building, you know, tech products for for different companies. So we we would kind of do like all of the hard things that digital agencies sell to clients, but actually don't have the skill to build. Um, We would, you know, build, build them. And it was really interesting. It was, it was, you know, a a really great experience. So in 2014, I guess this is about two or three years later, uh, you started 
essentially your, your first, I say first real business, your first business got, got some real scale, which was a, um, you started this on-demand towing business called Tow, which is a little bit unusual because um, it's not really a, a full software business. It's kind of, I guess, a marketplace um, that you created. Talk, talk me through, because where did the idea come from? Because it's, it's such a different idea to, to almost anything in the, in the tech space. Yeah, so uh, you know, I was um, I was doing some work. What, you know, one of the um, pieces of software that I built, and I got asked to do a bunch of consulting work with this car auction in Brisbane. And um, this car auction turns out over hundred million dollars a year, or you know, was at the time, and literally paper based. Right, like they would literally hand around sheets of paper around and sign them and um, write numbers, and and that's how it worked. Right, bits of paper that were put on the car, and uh, it was you know incredible to kind of see the scale that was still done with like true paper based systems. And uh, you know they asked build like a you know digitize it and build a, a sort of um, digital you know um, digital auction platform. And uh, and so I built it, and and I sort of built this. Um, whole program to manage everything in that business, and they had I think probably eighty staff or something, and it was a live like a live auction platform, like eBay style auction that people so people could start bidding not just in the two minutes that the car came around, but they could bid a week before, right, or days before, and, and all the way through, and then finish with the like culminate in the live auction here, and, and and anyone who couldn't make it to the auction that day could suddenly bid, right, they couldn't bid before, and uh, it was really interesting, and it was it was a kind of great experience, and then. Um, you know, they were just kind of really interested in growing their business, right? And they were saying, you know, we'd, we'd love to just win more business. Where there were only a single auction where their competitors are kind of like multi-city auction houses. And uh, they wanted to win more business. They wanted to win more insurance business or contract business, you know, finance companies. And they said, you know, like, what, what can you do? They obviously know that I was commercial, you know, not just build, didn't just like building things, but I could go and sell them too. And they were like, just figure out like how you could, you know, go win more business for us. And um, one of the things I would look at was, uh, you know, tenders, available tenders and, and whatnot. And there was a government tender that was released one day for the first ever statewide towing and empowerment of motor vehicles in Queensland. And it was for the whole state. And I thought that's a lot of um, that's a lot of cars to sell, right? Every single impounded car in Queensland is is a lot. That's a that's a big contract. And there's never ever been a statewide contract before. And and I looked into it and I saw so I was, you know, researching like towing companies and what holding yards, and whatever. And I realized that much like the rest of the world, much like here in the US even now and, and still in Australia now, um, is towing's hugely fragmented. There are no statewide towing companies. There are no national towing companies. There are no, you know, huge towing companies that have fleets everywhere. And so I thought you know, no one's going to be able to actually fulfill this contract. Like the only way to do this is by, is through tech, is through building like a network, right? That uh, a central dispatch system and, and that would dispatch to all the, you know, local towing companies. And so, you know, I pitched um, on behalf of the auction, I pitched to, we pitched the Queensland government uh, to, to, for the contract uh, for the, to the Queensland police. And we, you know, I ended up building a prototype of um, what became TOW, which was an on-demand towing platform where police could come and enter an address, you know, and Google Auto complete the address, we geocode the location, locate the closest towing contract that we had in the system, dispatch the job out, and then manage the whole end-to-end, you know, communication and, and job flow. And um, we pitched them and, and won, right? And we literally, like, TOW wasn't even an incorporated entity and we won the first ever <laughs> statewide contract. And... Um, 
and that's where it came from. And so the two owners of the car auction, uh, uh, you know, uh, and I sort of founded that business. Um, in the end, you know, well, later on there was, th- you know, we were all three were directors at the start. I wasn't even a director of the company um, when we first won the contract and, uh, you know, sort of a GM was kind of my title. Um, but, yeah, I you know, put it together. I literally drove uh, 1.4 million square kilometers and met towing com- companies all across the state and signed them up and I would go and stay and, and travel and work and, you know, stay in the tiniest st- towns in Queensland, meeting them all. And uh, and on the first day of trading, on the 1st of July 2014, we took over towing for the Queensland Police, the entire state. We had something like a 1,000 police comms operators all trained on the software that I built, all with their own logins, who would log in and book jobs 24-7. And, uh, and it was incredible. You know, on the first first month, we did $70,000 of revenue. The second month, 210000 Third month, 280000 And kind of kept growing from there. And, um, yeah, it was, it, you know, it was, uh, <laughs> it was at all the hallmarks of, a, of an incredible business. The, you know, the two owners of the car auction put up some initial sort of seed money, about half a million dollars. And, um and and we built it out from there, but um, but yeah, we we didn't take any venture money, but you know we we did fifty million dollars of revenue in in four years, so it was uh, it grew really quickly. Labeled the Uber of towing, Dom's business was a massive success, and as the company grew from that single police contract to a statewide, then a nationwide service, Dom was ready to ride the wave. However, after the expansion, things got messy between Dom, Tow.com.au and the Queensland Police. Fast forward, um, you know, four years later, uh, you know, we ended up, or, you know, even two years later, we got locked in a bit of dispute with the Queensland government uh, or the Queensland Police Service specifically because, um, you know, they just didn't want to pay. Didn't want to pay for these. Um, there was, I think they grossly underestimated the number of cars that would be in empowerment right across the state and grossly underestimated um, how much you know storage would cost? You know, for every vehicle incurring a daily storage amount right across the state, um, and you know, if you sit there and don't release cars, and you know, it's a lot of paperwork, right? And if if you just ignore the paperwork for months, then it keeps adding up, and it added up to a lot of money. And um, we spent a long time in dispute with the. Queensland Police and obviously had a lot of frustrated towing operators that we represented and, and we spent a lot of money trying to recoup, um, you know, the money that was owed for those tows and impoundments. And in the end, you know, I actually ended up taking out a personal loan and um, and and getting the money together to um, and filed, a, filed a lawsuit in the Supreme Court against the um, Queensland Police Service or the Queensland Government to try and recover the funds and just, you know, uh, just stretched out the lawsuit and ran out of cash and uh, a- ended up in, you know, 2018, in, in June 2018, putting the company in liquidation and, and shutting it down. And, you know, um, obviously all, all the intent of getting as much money in the contract is, you know, hands as possible. Obviously it was clear that we weren't going to recover what was owed to us. But, um, you know, and in the end the government did end up settling with the liquidator and paying Seven seven figures, but um, but you know probably twenty cents on the dollar or something for what for what um, we were trying to recover from them, and uh, yeah, so it was a you know it was a it, it was a two year period of just really hard and 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 you know bit of fighting with you know it's really weird fighting a police force. Um, I, I really don't like don't like um, you know to have to answer to anybody, and and it was it was a really tough time. It was you know obviously the hardest period of business I've I've ever been through.
So you had this, should have been a very successful business, again, significant turnover, and you've done a really good job building the team, and suddenly due to really no fault of your own, due to, and, and this is not uncommon, uh, someone just not paying, which causes a sort of cascading effect, you were sort of the down, I guess the downstream victim of that. How did you feel, your business is, is in administration, liquidation, you were so close to being incredibly successful and, and being set for life, and suddenly you're back to square one. How do you get up on that Monday morning and and reinvigorate yourself? Yeah, you know, this is like we come full circle. Uh, you know, as we so, spoke about before, um, is uh, you know I've just been through hard times. I I know what hard times feel like, and I don't have another gear. And it's like, what am I, what am I going to do? Feel, lay in bed and feel sorry for myself. And I didn't want to go and cry, crawl into a hole and and have people, you know, just think I've disappeared. And you know, it's it's kind of write me off. And uh, and so you know, I just got up and. Decided I had to move on with life. But, you know, and it was really tough because the toughest thing about that was, you know, I, I was, you know, I literally put every last dollar that I had into fighting to get that money repaid, right, and to fighting to get these, you know, get the money in. And and I failed. And, and so, you know, I, I think that powers that be painted a really good job at making me the full <laughs> the scapegoat of that as well for for the you know small businesses or towing companies they got 20 cents on the dollar or 30 cents on the dollar or whatever it is that they got you know maybe more now but um and uh and and so you know that was tough but i i thought you know what they just can't you know if i go and hide then that's what they're going to do they get to make me the scapegoat they get to you know do do that and, and i just got to keep going Dom had a fantastic attitude, but the reality was a bitter pill to swallow. The company that he'd spent years building from the ground up had been liquidated. Dom had even been forced to take a personal loan to fight the Queensland government. It was an incredibly difficult time, and that's why Dom's next idea was so surprising. My son was in hospital for a few weeks, and um, he had a whole bunch of problems. He's, he's, he's doing really well now. But... Um, we had, uh, you know, we had my wife's grandmother staying with me, uh, staying with us while, you know, my, my wife and I were at the hospital. One of us was at the hospital 24 hours. One of us was at home with our daughter. And so she was staying helping us out. And, you know, one night she was sitting at the kitchen table ordering groceries for us and just couldn't check out. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, that's, that's how, you know, just seeing her that night and, and whatever is I thinking, remember thinking, wow, this is like a, a crazy big problem. I can't believe, you know, this little old lady can't buy, can't buy food online. So, you know, at the time I, I built a passwordless authentication system. So the idea was it was like magic links as a service, right? Going, why does Granny even need a password, right? It's like it's outdated tech and she sh- surely doesn't need one for every website. And so what, why can't they just like send her, a, send her a login link, right? And then once she's clicked a link, I was like, well, because if, if it was a third party doing it, then she wouldn't even need to click a link for each service. One link, so she could have one click login, the next site that uses this, right? So the usual flow on e-commerce is you go to a site, you create a, account, so adam.schwab at luxuryescapes.com, and I have a password, and every time I go back, I have to log in to that account, and then it may have my credit card details saved, or I have to re-enter them again. So the, the problem you're solving is that people forget their passwords, is, is, or is that is that sort of the main, the main friction point that you're trying to get over? Sort of. At, at, at the time, yeah. So, um, you know, the flow of e-commerce is 
you know, add to cart, view cart, checkout, right? And then the site typically says, what's your email address? And you put in your email address and they either say, oh, great, you've been here before. So enter the password that you created last time, or you haven't been here before. So fill in these 15 fields, right? And uh, that's, you know, that's the kind of flow of e-commerce. So, but, you know, a third of all um, transactions are still abandoned today because of passwords, right? Because of friction with login. And, uh, you know, passwords are hard. The only people who have to fill in passwords are your returning users. Your most loyal customers are ones who get this hard blocker. And um, and so, you know, I, I figured, all right, there's, there was a solution to passwords, right? That surely we can do this without passwords. And, you know, I built some tech to kind of do that, put online as on Product Hunt, this site that sort of showcases, you know, new inventions, new tech inventions, and, you know, startups to the world. And had a lot of people use it in a couple of days and, and realized there was something here. So I called I called it bypass, right? B Y E P A W S. That was the little um, tool I created, and um, and the idea was that you know she could put in an email address and it would just email her a link, right? And say hey to log in, and logging with link is kind of more prevalent these days. It was far less prevalent then, and um, and it would say hey click the link to log in. You click the link and you logged in. No password, right? You don't need a password to log in with the site, and because the reality is right when we see a site that has an email or a password field. The, the company is trying to do two things. They're actually trying to identify you and authenticate you, right? And there's a little bit of nuance there. But so the email address tells them who you are. The password tells them that you're authenticated against that that account, right? That's the idea. So when you type in an email and a password, though, the site is just assuming that that's your email address. But like, if somebody can guess your password and you know credential stuffing attacks one of the you know the biggest form of attacks on the internet. If somebody scrapes a list of passwords and emails, you know, on these data breaches, then they can just put in your email and password and log it as you, right? So if the, the site isn't actually identifying you; they're just assuming that you're identified. So there's a fairly large sort of security hole. So the good thing about sending a link in email is that you are actually identifying yourself and authenticating yourself in one step because only the email address, like the person who controls the email address, can read those emails, right? And so only they can click the link. So it's actually far more secure than a password anyway, and it's one time. So the next time, you know, the next time you do this on a new device, you have to do, you know, another link. So it's not like there's some stored password that somebody could just learn over time and use it again. I thought if I do this, I wanted to build it in the US. I always wanted to because, you know, as every delusional founder, I thought it would be a raging success. We'd have billions of users and there's, you know, not really, you know, the biggest, you know, sites in Australia have to um, support 25 million people. And so we didn't have the engineers and and the people at scale who built these massive companies and every major tech, you know, almost virtually every major tech company in the world, Bar, Canva and Atlassian now um, and Afterpay. Uh, you know, came out of like one city, right? San Francisco has produced virtually every major tech company in the world. And so that's why I wanted to build this, right? I wanted to leverage the talent that they have, you know, wanted to leverage the network, wanted to leverage the, you know, venture capital. I didn't want to run out of money like Toe. I, I just wanted to do things differently. And I, uh, and so I wanted to build it there, but of course it wasn't the right time. You know, we had a sick child, healthcare systems, not amazing. And, uh, and we didn't have the money to, you know, to go and do it and, and take a risk and, and so, you know, I, I just spent a few months kind of ideating on the concept, right? And um, and I think I sort of realized, and especially after talking about, you know, e-commerce companies, uh, was that passwords are just a symptom, right? The, the real problem is that the entire stack of identity, the entire checkout process is 
like is redundant, right? We fill in the same information at every single site that we go to, right? We have to register independently at the checkout form. We have to enter the same address. We enter the same credit card details. Like everything is, is, is redundant. Um, and then even the initial flow of commerce we talked about before, add to cart, view cart, checkout, like that's three clicks. What if you just want to buy one thing, right? Why can't you just click and buy it? Like why, why even make somebody click add to cart, view cart, checkout? Why, why not just like give them the buy now option, right? And Amazon does this very successfully. Every single product page on Amazon has a buy now button. And it's not by, like, it's not by accident, right? That's the easiest way for people to buy stuff. This is the most successful e-commerce company in the world. And so, you know, that's, that's what we went out to build with Fast is, is one-click checkout, but one-click from the point that you're looking at what you want to buy. And that means, you know, obviously your entire profile, you know, your payment, um, your, 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 you know, your payment identifiers, but we had to integrate with the whole stack so that you could buy in one-click right from the product page, right from that moment of inspiration. So you went, you have this really really great idea uh, and obviously a huge market size because um, unless you're Amazon and maybe Shopify now, very few platforms provide this, especially cross-platform. How do you go from idea to team to business? Uh, what was that What was that process? Obviously, you're in Brisbane still. How quickly did you grow the team and, and how quickly did you raise capital? So I, uh, I founded Fast officially on in March 2019. Um, and March 14, 2019, and, you know, launched Fast Login, which was like a, the sort of, you know, the, the polished version of um, Bypass originally. And uh, really is a kind of proof of concept for getting like a one-click network going, right? Even if it's just authentication to start, showing how it can work cross-site. And then I raised an angel round um, from, you know, sort of Sydney, Sydney-based high net worth typically, a um, couple of Brisbane people, but, you know, did the rounds in Sydney, raised... 600,000 Australian dollars, about 400,000 American. And, um, and caught, that was in May 2019. And then I caught the next plane to, to San Francisco in June. I used, you know, used Twitter as a tool to meet people here. I really didn't know anyone. Um, to be honest, I actually knew one person. So uh, as part of our fun, you know, sort of fundraising angel round in, in, in Sydney, um, I met a lot of the original angels in Afterpay, a lot of the people who funded Afterpay, Nick, Nick Molnar originally. And, um, I'd had some exposure to Nick before that because, you know, a lot of us had bought Afterpay stock early and, uh, and we're big fans of the company. But, you know, during the fundraise, um, all the investors were saying, you've got to meet Nick, you've got to meet Nick, you've got to meet Nick. And then um, Nick's old boss actually ended up one day when we were talking to him, he, um, he said, hey, you've got to meet Nick and just rang him during our meeting. And Nick answered and he said, all right, come and, come and see me in my office this afternoon. And, um, and so we, you know, I, I drove and um and met nick that day and um you know it was great we ended up signing a partnership um and uh, between the two companies so we ended up not doing much <laughs> with that but uh but it was but it was really great you know they really uh, after they really liked you know what, what i was building and and what i wanted to do and thought it made a ton of sense and i remember um nick brought in his you know his head of brand head of retail and said hey listen to listen to this guy's pitch and tell me what you think um in front of us in front of me and um and she said uh, that sounds great sounds amazing i think brands would love that <laughs> and and he's like right well all right let's, let's do something the investor list continues to grow and don was able to pull together a team that would allow fast to grow and scale and in late 2020 thanks to that team and the work of co-founder Alison Bar Allen, Fast managed to raise an incredible $101 million at a valuation 
that many believe to be more than $1 billion. This cemented fast as Australia's newest unicorn and placed Dom on the AFR Young Rich list. This used to be the funny thing that, um, especially like Australian VCs would say, right, early on, is, you know, tell them about the, tell them about the vision, right? And, and with Australian VCs, I always found that I was kind of pulling the vision back a little bit <laughs> because they're too wild and it just seems crazy, right? In the States, it's the opposite. You've got to go bigger. You've got to give them the big, the big, big view and big story, right, and, and let them know just how big it could possibly be. But, um, but the one thing Australian VCs used to always say was like, yeah, it makes sense. But, you know, for this to be really big, you would have to go and sign up all of the merchants. And I'm like, yes. And they're like, but that's a lot of work. I'm like, yes. And that's, and, but that's why we're raising money, right? Is that that's, that's how we go and do it. We go and build this network, right? And sure, yeah, we have to go and do hard work. You got to go talk to customers. You got to go get customers to agree, right? You got to build a sales process. You got to build a sales function. And they just couldn't get past it. Like, oh, that would be, that would be hard work. And um, that's what we do, right? Is you've, you know, we obviously put a lot. I mean, you know, not, not to belittle our product and engineering because it's more than half the business, right? It's a huge portion of what we do is, is, is making that like beautiful product. But yeah, you've got to get people to use it. And so you've got to go tell them about it. And then you've got to get, you know, make sure that you're hitting the value props of all the stakeholders and make sure that you're getting consensus and, you know, doing all of the things you've got to do as an enterprise sales company. And um, because if you don't get, you know, the button on, on Merchant's websites and nobody can use it. And um, and so, yeah, you've got to go and sign up a big network. And and, and that is the job, right, is, is signing up as many merchants as possible and signing up large merchants and, and building out that network. While Dom and Fast did an incredible job raising money, the business was operating in a very difficult sector with lots of well-funded competitors. Other businesses like Bolt, Checkout.com and PayPal are all working to solve a really similar problem. But according to Dom, Fast was different. And in a very Dom Holland way, he also claimed Fast was much better. Our merchant network is like over three X the size of Vaults, like something nearly four X, I think. And our biggest, our biggest merchant is twice the size of Vaults' biggest merchant, and and we've got bigger ones coming on board. And so, um, yeah, it's it's, it's an exciting time, uh, you know. But uh, but at the same time, I think you know Vault was probably a bit, um, or you know, a bit lofty with their valuations. I'm not sure. I I know that I don't think that that they're at that level where they are, and I think that's going to make their job really hard over the next um, you know few years. But you know, for, this is a massive sector. Like e-commerce specifically is a multi-trillion dollar market. Um, payments, are, you know, as we know, as you mentioned, all, a lot of payments companies worth a lot of money, right? PayPal's, you know, was a $200 billion company before it wiped out 30% or 40% of its value in the last week. But, you know, there's a lot of big companies here, Apple Pay, Google Pay, Alipay. Um, these, these buttons are worth a lot. And that's just the payment piece. The exciting thing about Fast is we're far more than just the payment piece. We're, we enable commerce everywhere, right? Which means that you can sell embedded, you can have checkout embedded in gift guides, right? So over the holidays, we had Saks Office, which is a massive retailer here, um, working with us, and they embed, they ran gift guides on GQ Magazine's website, and they would embed the Fast Checkout button inside the gift guides. So you could buy the tie, you could buy the T-shirt, you could buy the sweater, from within the review, within the gift guide on GQ without leaving one click from the publisher's site and you were still buying it directly from Saks Fifth. And so it's like you could have recipe sites who tell you about, you know, a slow cooker recipe and then sell you the slow cooker in one click from the recipe and you're buying it from, you know, Harvey Norman or JB Hi-Fi or one of these places, right? Um, and, and so it's so exciting. And like Instagram stories, TikTok, 
TikTok, every single marketing channel becomes transactable. We're the only people in the world doing this. And so really what you're valuing then is it's not even payments isn't like the primary revenue stream. Like what you're going after is ad spend, right? You're going after affiliate spend. You're going after like marketing growth spend for brands. And that alone is a trillion dollars a year. So it is just like, you know, incredible the size of this market and the size of the opportunity um, and just how hungry brands are to kind of, you know, improve and, um you know, and grow. And so yeah, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's been amazing to see how quickly we've been able to grow and we haven't even scratched the surface yet. If you're not already, you, you will soon be incredibly wealthy and, and you've come a long way from, from the kid who was sort of at boarding school and, and, um, and, and obviously not long ago was, was obviously what happened with Toe. How, how has your life changed in the last two years? It's been, it sounds like an absolute roller coaster of, of emotion and success and, and with plenty more to come. Have you? I imagine your family's now with you in in, in the states. I'm not sure you're back in Brisbane, um, given COVID. But how has your life changed day to day in the last three years through the fast journey? I lost everything after Toe, right? As you know, I came from from zero and um, and and then built up again. And you know what? I have so much fun in in building this business. I've had fun in building every business that I've got. I, I love what I do, and that's how you know the hard work makes sense. Um, because I just enjoy it. I enjoy the process. I love building product. I love working with engineers. I love talking to customers. You know, I, I, I still live the same life though. You know, I'm married with two kids, you know, I've got my beautiful wife and, and two amazing kids and I come home and, and have kids whinging at me and, you know, a house that needs like all the domestic duties that you know, everyone else has. And so I, um, yeah, I, you know, much, much, much is the same. Um, despite everything being different. And, and that's the beautiful part about it, right, is that you still need I'm a creature of habit. I get up every morning and go get a coffee for my wife and I. And, um, you know, it's, it's just nice having that, that routine. As I said at the top of the show, despite several years of hard-working grind, Dom and the team sadly weren't able to make Fast work. Despite raising $100 million last year, Fast was burning $10 million every single month. And last year was only able to generate revenue of $600,000. And when they weren't able to raise another round of funding this year, sadly, Dom was forced to shut the doors a second time on a business he founded and built. But knowing Dom, this isn't the last we'll hear of him. And that was Dom Holland, founder of Fast. And you've been listening to From Zero with me, Adam Schwab. Our producers are Lindsey Green and Ed Gooden. For more episodes, search From Zero Podcast. Listener.